I, uh, I love that song by Philip Bliss. You want to go back a couple? <laughs> I know I'm going to mess you up, but I often do this. Oh, you knew I was going to do this, didn't you? Right there. Um, yeah, go back. Go oh, uh, uh, forward. Nope. Oh, one more. Another one. And one more. And then one. Oh, right there. Uh, gosh, that's great theology right there. That's really good theology right there. Uh, guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God is he. The two get switched. You get Jesus' righteousness. Full atonement. Can it be? Do you know that you're going to stand before God someday? You're going to stand before God, and you'll be judged. You won't just be judged not guilty. You'll be judged innocent. Why? Because Jesus was spotless Lamb of God, and you will be judged. That's what happened at the cross. You get his righteousness. He takes your sin. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, dude, why not? I'm serious. That is the greatest deal in the world. There's no possible better thing than that. Guilty, vile, and helplessly spotless Lamb of God is He. Full atonement. Can it be? It should blow your mind. Anyway, sorry. That's totally free. I didn't think about that at all just to worship. So, and you cannot have to pay for that. This, however, you got to pay for. There's a, a phrase by William Shakespeare that, oh yeah, and, oh, nicely done. Who's back there? Is that Alicia back there today? You're smoking back there. That was very nice. Uh, it says, uh, then you went one ahead. Yeah, yeah, nice. It says, the tongues of dying men enforce attention like deep harmony. I like quotes that make you think. In other words, something that is said right before you go toes up, or you probably already toes up at that point, but permanently toes up, makes people think. So I just want to list some of the great quotes, famous last words of some people. First one is Lady Nancy, Lady Nancy Astor, who was the first woman elected to the British Parliament. She said, Jackie, is it my birthday or am I dying? <laughs> I guess, you know, if you have to have last words. Uh, John Barrymore, die? I should say not, dear fellow. No Barrymore would allow such a conventional thing to happen to him. <clears throat> This is one of my favorite. Paul, he's a poet. Paul Claudel said, Doctor, do you think it could have been the sausage? <clears throat> Lou Costello, the comedian, Abbott and Costello fame, said, That was the best ice cream soda I ever tasted. <clears throat> now, one of, the, one of the most famous ones is from John Quincy Adams, who was a strong Christian and, a, and, a, and a, the President of the United States. Said, this is the last of earth. I am content. Isn't that a great phrase? Man, I hope I say something, something really smart right before I die. Probably, though, when I die, it'll be something like this sweatshirt right here. Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> That's what it says. A redneck's, a redneck's famous last words. Hold my beer and watch this. Yeah. <laughs> That's Jimbo knows. That's probably going to be. That's probably going to be mine. So. <laughs> oh, that's just beautiful. We're right now in, in a part of the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. It is Jesus, now it's his la not his last words on earth, but it's going to be his last words to his guys, to his, his 12 disciples. He's going to give them the last words. And if you've been following us from John chapter 13, it is, uh, Jesus is in a huddle, so to speak, with them, even though they've moved. They were in the Last Supper, then they moved, 
and they're walking now. They'll eventually walk to the Mount of Olives, uh, and they could even be in route. And he's giving them this last instruction. It's a huddle. And we're going to see his last word, which is really cool, John 16, uh, what the last thing he tells them. But this last bit of instruction is hugely key. And he's in a huddle, so to speak. If you want to pop the next one. You know, unfortunately, if you're a, if you're a uh, Canuck fan, sorry about that. But, but this, this would be like last-minute instructions of what the coach is giving a Canadian hockey team. By the way, Canada and hockey. Anybody ever been to Canada when there's hockey on? Oh my gosh, every channel, just hockey, hockey, hockey night in Canada, and it's like everywhere. And I was just talking with this 60, about 68-year-old woman at this place in Vancouver, and I was talking, I just was trying to make conversation, and I said, oh, I, I watched some of the hockey game last night, and the Canucks hadn't played. It was in the playoffs, but Ottawa was playing. And I said, yeah, I saw that, I saw that Ottawa won. You'd think I'd have been you know, confessing that I'm the one that shot JFK or something. We don't like Ottawa. And she starts listing off the players for Ottawa and the players for, holy smokes. I mean, it's like, this is like a religion. Everybody up there. That's how serious it is. You're in this huddle, and you're a Canadian, and it's hockey. Okay, so take that as much as you can and put it down to what Jesus is doing with his disciples. It's his last talk with them before they're going to break out. And and there's this major event that's going to happen called the cross and the resurrection. But other than that, Really, this is his major last time with them. He's going to spend some days teaching them a few things afterwards. We'll see some of those in, in the end of the book of John. But primarily, this is his last talk with them. And they're going to have to go through something they've never went through before. And that's a time of wondering, was it all worth it? Who was Jesus? Why did he die? What happened? And Jesus is preparing his guys for that. So we're going to pick it up at John chapter 16. If you want to open your Bible, you can pick it up at the end of John chapter 16 or grab that insert. We still have some of those booklets around. If you'd like to have one of those, you can just take it with you. If you'd like a little gospel of John. Um, Or you can just follow along on the screen, however, whatever it is that gives you joy. John chapter 16. Now, Jesus is a master teacher. He's a master. I know this is an understatement. Jesus is a master teacher. And he does something that, he it, it, it does this a lot, but he does it right here clearly. He casts out, I'm going to use a fishing analogy here, he gives a bait. And here's the bait. He says, he's speaking to his guys now, and he says, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. It's, it's kind of like this riddle. Hmm. Should we close our eyes and then we see you, or what? what is it? And they're not getting it. They don't get it. We're going to find out in just a second. They totally don't get it. But Jesus loves to do that. Jesus is a master of that. You know what? I think Jesus still enjoys doing that. Because there's things in your life you're just going, hmm, how does this work? What's going on? And, and God likes to unfold things a little bit at a time. He doesn't give you the entire answer right up front. It's, life is not an odd-numbered problem, okay? There is no answer in the back of the book on this one. It just kind of, as you unfold it, it just kind of, some of you are slowly getting that, yeah. Uh, the, the, the music students, yeah. The... the <laughs> Slowly, the engineers left. Slowly, you go through and you get things. And Jesus loves to let it sit there for a while. And he does. He just let it sit there. Now, when you get to this point, if you're reading anything on John chapter 16, everybody has a controversy over what this even means. It's really interesting. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's not that important, actually, but there's a controversy on what this could possibly mean. Does he mean, we know, we know now from, from being ahead years, but did he mean that he was going to go and die, and then he was going to be raised again? Others think that he actually means that he's going to go to the Father, 
and then you're not going to see him again until his second coming. And, you know, I think there's strong arguments on both sides. I tend to lean more towards the first, but I, Jesus is never really going to explain it, and, and there's some people that think he meant both, and that's, that's quite possible. Let's take a look at what he sets this bait through. He says this thing, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Certainly he does mean, for sure at least, we know he means that he means he's going to die, and then he's going to be rose again. At, at least he means that. He could mean more, we're not sure. Now, setting the hook. If you're, if you're a fisherman at all, Jesus is, a, you, you know, the most important part of fishing is getting that fish attracted to it. The second most important part is once he bites, is getting that hook just set just right. And there's a trick to it. You can't just yank like crazy, and you can't just let them run forever. You've got to get that hook so go oh, right their mouth. And that's what Jesus does here. He, lets his, he says this phrase, you're gonna, in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore, and then after a while, you're going to see me. And then he just checks out. And they're kind of over here, and, and some of his disciples said to one another, verse 17, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? And... This other thing that he said before, and we haven't had a chance to look at it today, but we've looked at it in John 16, because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus lets him run there. He lets him, he lets him take that hook for a little while. And at least in my experience, that's something that Jesus loves to do. Jesus enjoys that, letting you kind of try to figure it out, and then he speaks. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now the reality is, yes, that's exactly what they did. They don't answer the question in the, in the passage this morning, but that's exactly what they were wondering, and Jesus nails it. He knows that they're struggling with that. And Jesus also knows that his disciples are not ready to hear the full message. They're not ready to believe in a Messiah who's going to come and who's going to die. That just is so, that didn't, that did no place, no category for that in their mind. They weren't, what do you mean you're going to die? That was just, Peter, when, when Jesus said that to him, says, no. He rebuked Jesus, if you look in Matthew chapter 16. He says, that will never happen. They didn't have a category for this Messiah who would die and rise again for their sins. It, it, it just, that wasn't in their mind. They wanted a political takeover. And that's not what Jesus had set up, at least not for this coming. So then, after that, he's going to reel them in. I'm going to read this all, and then we're going to kind of look at some things. Okay. I tell you the truth. He's going to explain it. He doesn't answer the question exactly what he meant by a little while or anything. He's just going to explain what's going to happen. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve... But your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. I'm sure Kelly is very excited that right now we're reading this. <laughs> but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now, I got, I got a series of things I want to I think about in just this section right here. First of all, he is telling his disciples, last minute in the huddle, you're right there, and he's saying, you're going to mourn. You're going to mourn. Now, no, no, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, but mourning implies sadness, implies loss, 
And it almost always used this particular word, almost always implies death. You're going to mourn. He's telling his disciples that. You're going to mourn. He says, you will mourn. I tell the truth, you will weep. And then he uses this analogy of like, it's going to be like you're giving birth. Now is your time of grief, he says in verse 22. Giving birth. Now, I've, I've never given birth. To me, it doesn't seem like any big deal. I mean, just lay there. <laughs> yeah. Carol Burnett says, if you want to know what giving birth is like, grab your lower lip and pull it over the top of your head. Um, I've tried that. It doesn't feel too good. Um, a woman giving birth to a child is pain because her time has come. Disciples, you will go through a period of complete mourning. You will lose it. You'll have, you'll, you'll have zero hope. Because they didn't understand that Jesus was going to raise again. They, they, they lost that in translation somewhere. They believed that they just wasted three years of their life and probably, probably going to be hunted down just like Jesus Christ and die like him. It was a horrible weekend for those guys. It's horrible. Not only that, while that's happening, Jesus says in verse 20, uh, 20, I tell you the truth, you'll weep and mourn while the world rejoices. They're going to think that they ended it all. They're going to think they had victory over me. They're going to think that they were so cunning and so smart that they trapped me. And when they put me on trial, that they were so clever that they got me to go to the cross. The reality is, is Jesus Christ had to basically give himself up in order for it to go. If you read the, the account of the trial of Jesus Christ, he finally just says, listen, I am the one. He gives himself up. But they're going to think that they've done it now. And they're going to dance. And they're going to party. So that's going to be really weird. You're going to be mourning and everybody around you is going to be partying. I don't remember if you remember in, on 9-11, one of the most stunning images to me were people in the Middle East dancing. Certain haters of America. I'm not trying to make politics here. America... America is not God's savior, okay? Don't hear me say that. But that image I'll never forget. When our country had been attacked or put under terrorism and there were people dancing in the Middle East. And that's what it's going to be like. She said, you are going to mourn and others are going to dance. Then he says, but your grief your joy will return. Look at the second part of verse 20 and on. He says, your grief will turn to joy. And then later on he talks about this in the imagery of this woman giving birth. But when her baby's born, she forgets the anguish, at least until they turn teenagers, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. There's something about it. I mean, I mean, it's a wonder that anyone ever has more than one child if you ever walk through a maternity ward. I've been there. It's amazing we had another child. It, it, it's not... Pleasant. Matter of fact, I used to have a line when we'd walk in the first time. It was so miserable that and Carol wasn't getting the right meds at the right time. And we kind of pondered about the thing about, you know, should you do natural birth or whatever they call that? I'm into drugs, man. I'm into drugs. <laughs> and so after the first one, you know, she had this new Bane shot or whatever. Those of you who had kids, you know what that is. And she felt great. And then that wore off and it was horrible. She's grabbing my lower lip, trying to put it over the top of my head and all these kind of things. And, and then, um, then we finally got this epidural thing where you just, just block her off, you know. So my line then, the next time we came for a second and third kid was, 
we want two epidurals, one for her, one for me. I mean, we want, no, we're not into this pain thing. I mean, give us drugs. You got drugs. Give me drugs. Legal, I don't go on the street, whatever. Just give us something <laughs> to do this. And you go through this experience, and at the end of it, for all three kids, all three kids, and they came out, and there's just, you just weep. You just never, you can't, you can't believe it. There's your son or daughter, I don't know how to make those, but uh, <laughs> there's your son. It's like, oh my gosh. There it is. And it just, for me, it, the pain was instantly forgot. You know, they're still doing work on her, but I got the kid. And... Your joy, your baby's born, you'll forget the anguish because of her joy that a child is born in the world. In fact, I think it makes it even better. I think when you weep over something, and then that turns to joy, it just is even richer. You'll mourn. The world's going to rejoice. Joy's going to return. Now, he's going to keep teaching them something here now. And he's going to go beyond what he was already trying to teach them. About this, in a little while, you won't see me. Then you're going to see me. And then he says, you know, it's going to be a really hard time. You're going to mourn. Others are going to rejoice. But it's, when I do come back, at my resurrection, when I come back, you are going to party. Unbelievable party. But then he says something about that day. Verse 23 says, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Now, let's just take a little, quick little, quick little glance at this. He says, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. That's an interesting phrase. I mean, what is he talking about there? In that day, you won't ask me anything. Well, did the disciples have a bunch of questions for him? Or, or what, is it, what is he talking about? There's different possibilities. Possibility one is that you don't need to. The first, that, that they will no longer question about, especially this big question they're having is, what does it mean in a little while you're, in a little while you're going, in a little while you're coming back? And what is this whole death of a Messiah and resurrection? What's that? They're going to understand the whole picture. They're going to understand how Jesus Christ came back to bring us back to the first two chapters of Genesis, which will reach their fulfillment in the last two chapters of Revelation. They realize that Jesus was the answer to that. So you don't need to ask me that anymore. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that Christ will be gone after his resurrection, and there'll be a period, that he'll be on, uh, here for 40 days, then he will ascend. Then you can't ask Christ in the physical sense. You can't ask him questions anymore. And the third possibility is that now you don't ask Christ because you go straight to the Father. Jesus Christ opened a doorway into being able to go straight into the throne room of God. For a few minutes here, I wish we were Jewish. So you can understand how awesome that idea is. In the Jewish uh, temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. The high priest once a year went in there with the bells around his ankle and a rope attached to him. The rope came out. The reason for the bells so they could tell that he was still moving. The reason for the rope was because he was in the very presence of God, in the Holy of Holies. They put a rope around him and it came out, outside the curtain and outside, so that if he died in there, they could pull him out. Because they weren't going in. No one but the high priest could go in. You just let the guy rot until next year or something. I don't know what they would do. So they had this rope that they could pull him out. That's an awesome thing to go right into the presence of God. And we just do it like that. 
And then sometimes we do it flippantly, admittedly, but other times we just get to go right to the throne room and call God our dad. Don't, don't take down the notch how awesome that privilege is. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because we do it in his name. He says, I tell you the truth, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. What does that little phrase, in my name, mean? It's not a little magic thing you put at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. I used to think, when I first became a follower of Jesus, if you didn't insert that, oops, shoot, it all didn't go. You know, it's, it's kind of like hitting the last button on the ATM or something. It just didn't go through. That's not the case. What it means is in his authority, on his behalf, in the name, in the power, because of what he did, and it is the most important thing God has. Think, what? All the characteristics? The name of God is the most important thing? Yeah. We're very familiar with the Old Testament. If you're at all, if you all uh, follow the Old Testament whatsoever, you're very familiar with Ezekiel 36, which is a passage. It's a huge promise talking about what's going to happen. It's a, it's a foreshadowing what's going to happen in Jesus. Ezekiel 36, where he says, uh, verse 24 and on, for I will take you, speaking to the people of their exiled now. This is a people of Israel. They've been exiled. It's horrible time. And he says this is a great promise. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you, because they've been spread out to all these different nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. It's a, one of the most profound promises of what's going to happen in the New Testament. In other words, the new after Christ. It's this whole idea of no longer will it be difficult. You'll have the spirit of God within you. He's going to change you. He's going to make you a different person. You can follow him. Now the question is, why does he do that? Why does God do that for those people? And a lot of you, and I will say too, because he loves us. And that's a correct answer. But it's not the ultimate answer. Read what comes before this. Ezekiel 16. Excuse me, 36, but starting in 16, this is what comes before it. This famous promise we always do. Look what comes before it. He says, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a mother, a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land, because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conducts and their actions. And wherever they went, among the nations, here it comes, they profaned my whole... Hey, aren't you a follower of, of God? And look at you, you're a mess. You profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave his land. Here it is. I had concern for my holy name, 
which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God places his name above everything else. It's the most important thing. His fame, name, and glory are the most important things. Number one thing on his list. Now, flip back to John 16. Jesus says, go to the next one. Uh, he says, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. In other words, you get that authority. You get to come to God in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't take that lightly. It's Jesus' most precious item, and he gives it to you. You get to come on my stand. You get to come because I have forgiven you, and you are in me, and I am in you. You get to come as if you were me. Don't take that lightly. That's awesome. Now, if you get that, if you get the idea of coming in the name of Jesus, it's like this morning, say, if someone were to come to the door here and interrupt me right now, and were to say, I'm coming on behalf of the President of the United States, and little guys with earphones and, and talking into their sleeves, and M16s are walking around. It's like, oh, just because the President of the United States isn't here, it's still the name. They come in the name. And that's what he says. If you come to the Father in my name like that, something radical is going to happen. An amazing promise. It says this, John 16, 24, until now you've not asked for anything. You haven't asked the Father in my name. Ask, and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. Dude, that, that's worth underlining in your Bible. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive and your joy will be complete. When I first became a follower of Jesus Christ, 1983, I remember that there was a period of time where I was, I was afraid to ask God things because they were all happening. Now, I wasn't asking for earth-shattering things. Maybe I should have been. <laughs> and I don't know if you ever get around somebody just has, an, has, a, has a right now, whatever, their relationship with God or God's choosing. i just like, man, would you pray for me on this, this, and this? Because you seem to right now ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. That is open to everybody in this room. Ask. You got a question for Jesus? Ask him. You got a question? Ask him. You got a situation in your life? Ask him. Well, God's not doing anything. Are you asking? Are you constantly asking? I got friends, high school friends. It's been 20, almost 24 years since I became a follower of Christ. I'm still asking for some of those guys to trust Christ. I encourage you to ask. Keep asking. Now, that's a great promise. Jesus then goes on in his, his huddle here, and he's going to close up with some things. He says, Though I speak, have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day will you ask in my name. There's this name again. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world. I'm going back to the Father. You get direct access to God the Father. Direct access to God the Father. The disciples respond to that. They said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Uh, that phrase, figures of speech, can mean it's actually kind of a, a tricksy way of speaking or it's a little bit clouded on purpose. And Jesus says, later I'm going to speak to you. You can read later parts of the New Testament when Paul writes on the authority of Christ and it's more clear than some of the, some of the ways it's written in the Gospels. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. It's like they get it. And Jesus responds, you believe at last. Or it could be a question. Some of your Bibles say, do you believe at last? It could be either way. But a time is coming and has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. This is Jesus saying this. It's the end of John chapter 16. John chapter 17, the whole chapter is Jesus' prayer to the Father. He doesn't speak to his disciples anymore. In John 18, he's arrested and they scatter. This is minutes away from happening, okay? You will all leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. And then he says this, and these are Jesus' last words right before they go, break, it's the end of the huddle. He said this, he says, I've told you these things, all these things from John chapter 13 on. Love one another, remain in the vine, I'm going to my Father, ask me for anything and you'll receive it in my name. All these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Do you know that's a promise? It's a promise that in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. Some of you are struggling in, in your walks with God, and you know what? There's the promise. It's the normal Christian life to, in this world, to have trouble. But it's also normal to have overcoming. But you can't overcome any, something unless you have trouble. It just it doesn't exist. And what's the solution? Taking heart. What does that mean? It could be translated, be of courage. Be of courage. Step out in courage. You'll never experience the joy of it until you step out in courage. Now, you can only have courage for things that you are afraid of. It doesn't make any sense to say, oh, I'm, I'm very courageous, I can lift this cup up right now. That, there's no courage involved there. But when there's something in your life that you know you should step out and to do, and you do it, there's, there's a sense of where it takes courage to do that. Take heart. I have overcome the world. You're in me. You will overcome the world. Now, let me warn you on something here. When you do that, I like to think of it like this, like there's a rope around you, or let's call it a bungee cord, that'll hurt less. There's a bungee cord around you, around your waist, and you're standing on a cliff. And you're looking over the edge of that cliff, and down there is all the stuff that you're afraid of. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's reconciling with someone. Maybe it's a, a, a relationship that's gone wrong. Maybe it's stepping forward in a relationship. Guys, you've been dating her nine years, it might be time, you know? Whatever it is, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, this, there's this cliff here. And you've got a rope around you, and the rope is, it's really the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ has overcome. And you're standing here, and the rope right now is connected up to heaven, but it's got a slack in it. 
And you will not feel the strength of that rope, bungee cord, until you jump. Now, let me just encourage you with something, or challenge you, or actually warn you. Almost always when you jump, there is a moment of free fall. I've never, anybody bungee corded before? There's some serious free fall, right? There's some serious free fall, and then you even just start to feel doing, you know? Same thing here. When you step out in courage, generally it's, it's not immediate. Sometimes it might even seem worse. I mean, you're standing here and you're thinking, well, at least when I was standing there, I'm, you know, I'm a coward, but at least my feet are on the ground. When you jump out, the first thought you have is, what did I just do? What did I just do? Any guy who's ever proposed, that's the first, that's the second thought that comes to mind. Will she say yes is the first. Second is, what did I just do? You step out there and there's a moment of free fall. Now, I'm not saying that, that every situation is going to work out just peachy keen. You know what? It may not. You may have gone through a lot of life's disappointments, but that's part of it too. If you've gone through life's disappointments, you know what, God? You've put me in places where I trusted you once and I jumped. And that bungee cord, it, it broke. Really? I don't think so. I don't think the bungee cord of God ever breaks. Do sometimes the circumstances not work out the way you would hope? Maybe. So if you're at a place where you feel like you've been burned by God, jump again. And then you'll probably realize, you know, the thing that I thought I was trusting God for, I'm really not. I thought I was trusting God for, for this, but in fact... What I really was trusting God for was that it work out this certain way that I had predetermined because it didn't work out that way. I wasn't saying, God, whatever, whatever happens when I jump, jump again. Let me ask you a question as we close. This is the end of the huddle for Jesus. We live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of the resurrection. The Spirit has been sent. Jesus said it's good that the Father, or excuse me, that I go back to the Father because the Spirit will be sent. It's better for you. It's better for us now than it was if we'd been all just walking around with Jesus. It's hard for me to gather that, but it's true. So the Bible teaches. You live in as good a time as it can possibly get. Do you realize that? And until we die and are with Christ, it's as good as it's going to get. How's your life outside the huddle? I, you know, we said break. Are, are you living like that? Are you jumping? Let's pray together. Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. And you've even promised that you'll answer. So God, I ask, I, I just pray right now that you would answer. God, in this room right now, there's all of us are pondering something. Whether it's something you brought up that is totally unrelated to the things we've been talking about, or whether it's something right on. Right now, everyone is pondering something. Jesus, for some of us, it might be the, for the very first time in our lives we're thinking that we should allow Christ to be our Savior, and that looks like a big cliff to jump over. Should I really trust Him? Will He really take care of me? So Jesus and I pray for courage for those who are in that place, that today would be the day they jump. Lord, I pray for others as we are faced with situations where we know we should turn away from something, 
and turn towards you. In this world, you will have trouble. God, there, there are situations of people in this room who feel very disillusioned. Sin and cynicism have driven many of us, God, to just almost despair. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, you said, Jesus. And we are in you. And we will overcome. And so, God, I pray for that, that even in the midst of our our despair, God, that you would show us clearly that we're overcomers because of you. Don't let us believe the lie. God, there's others of us that we have a decision to make on something. It's something facing us. There's something here. And God, this morning, would we just trust you? Would we believe that you're ultimately really our good? It's not just... uh, it's not just a concept, but that you're really good and you're, you're worth jumping. That you're safe. That we can jump into our Father's arms and you will catch us. So I pray for that, God, that you give us the courage to do that. Even now as we sing this closing song, would you bring those things, Holy Spirit, to mind that we should do? And, and, and Spirit, if there's healing that needs to take place in this room, if there's encouragement, if there's rebuke, whatever it is, Spirit, we want to give you freedom to move. We pray in Christ's name.